duty to shine the light of truth, to bring justice to the restless souls whose lives were lost to their hands. Rise up against the evildoers of this world so that their souls may have peace. We will not surrender. We will fight. We will stand for what is right because we are the justice warriors. Hello, justice warriors. I'm Heather Cohen. And I'm Tracy Ellis. Tracy and I have been involved in a lot of cases in the time that we've known one another, and during that time, we've seen more than our fair share of murder cases that were at the hands of a spouse or a partner. The fact of the matter is that all homicide and missing person cases are equally heartbreaking. But today, we want to focus on domestic violence. I cannot stress to you the importance of getting out and taking steps to be sure that your significant other does not get away with murder in the event that the unspeakable happens. We have invited a very special guest, someone who knows the subject all too well, to help us deliver this message today. Norma, Tracy and I met you at the Q Conference a few years ago, and although I was sick in my room and completely missed your class, Tracy couldn't stop talking about it, so I know it must be amazing. I'm really grateful that you've taken the time out of your day to come talk with us, and I can only hope that this podcast will reach somebody out there that needs to hear what you're about to say. So I'm just going to get out of your way and give you the mic. I just love going to the Q Conference because what it does is it brings together uh, families that either have missing or have had homicide in the family. And so many of these cases do come from domestic violence, you know, and we all know what domestic violence is. It's a, uh, an intimidation, you know, physical and sexual assault, you know, abusive behaviors in a systematic pattern of power and control. So what it is, is it's, I mean, it's inclusive of so many different types. I mean, there's sexual, physical, psychological, emotional. I mean, unfortunately, you know, they run the range. And these are the things that so many times in these cases you're hearing about. So the, unfortunately, the frequency and severity of domestic violence can vary dramatically from, but there's one component that is uh, consistent in terms of domestic violence. And that's the consistent effort of power and control over another person. And in the U.S. alone, 20 people per minute are physically abused. I mean, that's insane. 20 people per minute. I mean, in the time we're going to have this conversation, how many hundreds of people are going to be abused? And just that moment, in that, in just that time, I mean, it's just, it's heartbreaking, you know, and not to mention that it's in every community. It affects all people. It doesn't matter your age, your gender, your race, your religion, you know, your uh, socioeconomic status, your nationality. Unfortunately, you know, there are no, you know, uh, parts or sectors that it doesn't affect. And then it costs, you know, so much money annually for the victims, the community, the nation, you know, I mean, there's just, it's mind boggling when you think of all the repercussions that come from just one act of violence. And because it's compounded and, you know, me just listing those statistics show you what that, 
Yes. I mean, you can only imagine how that reverberates all through the system, you know, whether it's the court system, whether, you know, uh, it's your schools, whether it's your police departments, whether, you know, I mean, this, this epidemic, which is what it is, it, it may not be of a medical nature like our COVID is, but it is an epidemic of the same type of epic proportions. And it, and it's just mind boggling that there isn't more done about it. And so many times, you know, when, when you hear about things like this, people want to blame the victim. They're like, Oh, why don't they just leave? Why don't they just do this? You know, it, it, there's unfortunately a lack of understanding for what victims are dealing with when they're trying to escape their abusers. You know, so these, so many times with these victims, what it is, is this is a learned behavior. You know, this crosses generations, the, the effects of it last lifetimes, you know, so what you're doing is you're seeing these cycles go over and over and over again. And these victims don't know how to stop them. They don't know the resources that are out there for them. You know, so what we, what I work with is something called an evidentiary abuse affidavit. And what this does is it lets victims be able to document their abuse in a manner that can be used in, in so many different, on so many different levels with so many different people that can help victims. So what it does is it validates their stories. It lets them write down their histories so that people are aware of what they're going through. And this way it can be used to their benefit. You know, hopefully before the worst thing happens, but this way at least someone knows what's going on with them. And maybe in looking at this, it gives them the impetus to go, you know, this was not what I imagined for my life. This was not, you know, where I thought I'd be. This was not what, this is not what I want for my family. So I need to figure out how to, how to change this and what the evidentiary abuse affidavit does is hopefully give them just the beginning of the resources that they need to escape these situations. So essentially what you are describing is sort of a journal that documents the abuse and serves multiple purposes. I think this is a fantastic idea because when people are in an abusive situation, they tend to excuse away and or completely block the abuser's bad behavior. But when you start putting it down on paper, you start to recognize patterns. What may have started out as something that only happened once in a while, say when he or she had been drinking, will start to escalate in both severity and frequency. So by keeping track of the abuse, it will hopefully help the victim to recognize it for what it is instead of sweeping it under the rug. And ultimately, the hope is that they'll get out before it becomes a matter of life or death. But in the event that it does reach that level, the documentation also serves as a sort of testimony on behalf of the victim to allow the court to enter the abuse into evidence if or when he or she is no longer able to do so due to being murdered or missing. 
That's exactly what the evidentiary abuse affidavit is hopefully going to trigger for some of these victims is, you know, when you're living that uh, in an abusive situation, every day is a day of survival. So you are taking that day in and of itself. And sometimes you're not realizing the accumulation of those days and what they're doing or how they're going. So now looking at it as a collective collective, you're now seeing, like you said, this pattern of behavior, right? So now you're going, holy smokes, what am I doing? He, you know, this abuser has done this to me on this day and this to us on this day. And, and, and I had to call the cops on this day. And, you know, now they're seeing the bigger picture because nobody wants to grow up and be an abuse victim. You know, nobody intends for themselves to get into those situations. So, so many times what people fail to realize is there is either a, you know, uh, a generational factor or, you know, something of that nature or that there is a, you know, some kind of self-esteem issues. There are so many you know, different factors that work into how people become victims. But it's the way that they feel that they have these lack of resources or protections or um, help, you know, to get out of them that they don't realize that they can. They can get out of these situations. They can stop them. And so hopefully in filling out the evidentiary abuse affidavit and seeing the different resources that are listed on document the abuse, they now can realize, you know, there's a chance for me. I might be able to get out of this. I can maybe stop the cycle. Now that I've seen what it is, now maybe I can do something about it. You know, in hearing you talk about resources, and getting help. It makes me think about a certain policy that different jurisdictions have. And that policy that's in place, from my understanding, is that whenever there is a domestic violence call, that all parties involved are taken in um, and arrested. So I can see how that would stand in the way of somebody calling the police for help. What are your thoughts on that? Right. Unfortunately, what some states have done is almost aired too much on the other side, you know, in, in terms of its safety practices, you know, in their protocol responses. So what they're thinking is, okay, rather than to believe one over another, what we're going to do is just take you both in. And this way we can better determine what the situation is, but what they don't realize is in an instance such as yours, it's an overboard reaction. So it wasn't anything that really needed, but because that protocol is set at a state level, you know, then it has to be changed at a state level. And I know that there had been some conversations in some states now that they're realizing uh, almost how it could work against a lot of people or even victims themselves and they're looking at changing that but you do need to you know contact your state representative find out you know what can we do to change this uh statute or this protocol and you know figure out 
how to do it legislatively or in whatever manner it needs to be done so that you can change that, you know, maybe go more towards the middle, you know, where there's a question, you know, do you fear for your safety? Well, obviously, you know, they figure if you called the cops, you must have, but maybe all I wanted was an escort out, you know, so it's, it's very hard to, for even law enforcement sometimes to figure out, you know, where is that line? At what point do I, you know, it's such a subjective type of a thing. So one guy, you know, or one uh, woman officer can see one thing and a guy officer can see something else. So when it's, you know, subjective, that's the problem that you come across. So I think they were trying to address that subjectivity, but now it's almost worked against them. Right. And I can definitely understand why they would want to do something like this, because unfortunately, there are situations where people have tried to use the justice system as a way to abuse somebody by either threatening to call or even going as far as to file false reports and put marks on their own bodies. I think this is a common way that women have actually controlled and manipulated men when in fact... They are the ones being abused. The point is that I think it's really important to evaluate each situation very closely because in an unhealthy and volatile atmosphere, it can sometimes be really difficult to tell who is actually the abuser and who is the victim. And abusers who generally possess narcissistic and or sociopathic tendencies are masters at gaslighting. Right. Right. Who is a victim? And again, going back to this is what document the abuse and the evidentiary abuse affidavit helps eliminate. It helps eliminate, you know, the fact that let's say they came to the house and a, you know, person is beat up. And they're able to produce an evidence, you know, having a hiding spot, an evidentiary abuse affidavit, or God forbid, you know, has to go by ambulance. And there's a friend, a trusted family member that has a copy of this evidentiary abuse affidavit and can then go to the police and go, look, you know, she filled this out or he filled this out because he was afraid of or she was afraid of this person. And now she's in the hospital or he's in the hospital. I need you to know this is what the story was. And this way it eliminates hearsay. You know, and that is the crew of the evidentiary abuse affidavit is the fact that A, it's an affidavit. So now if, you know, if if it could be fought to, to come into court or it can be used at least by the state's attorney in terms of information, same thing with law enforcement, but it gives a way for the true victims to be able to write their stories down so that they are validated and um, memorialized both in a a video and a written format that is on a, a, a website app. So we kind of struggled with putting the app on the app store or, you know, it had been once before, but what we wanted was we know how abusers think they're going to be searching those phones. They're looking at what apps are being downloaded. So we were looking for a way to get victims to be able to, you know, 
do these affidavits but not be traced. So we did it as a web-based app. So you, if you go on Document the Abuse, there is a um, portal button at the bottom of it that lets you go into it and you can update it. So not only can you fill it out at one period of time, you can then go back and update it should other experiences come up that you want to um, put into your history. So now there's no, you know, if you can do it at a library, you can do it at a church, you can do it, you know, someplace that maybe the abuser doesn't have access to that um, computer. And now there's no way for them to trace that. It isn't on the phone. So now you've eliminated. So it's a, it's what we call a web-based app. um, It's a work in progress. You know, we actually, Paul and I have been working very hard on this for, for quite some time. And, and, you know, this is what we've come up with and what we're adding to it is also a journal. So now let's say, you know, someone who you think is being abused. Or you work with somebody that you think is being abused. So now you can go into this same app that houses the evidentiary abuse affidavit and start a journal that now you can say, well, um, Bob came in to work with the black eye on May 1st and just log it in there. Um, Bob has been leaving early after harassing phone calls, uh, you know, September 3rd you know, later that year. So you can start to journal when you're seeing things happen too. And this way, at least it can either coincide with the evidentiary abuse affidavit, or it can just be a standalone so that should you know that anything happens to this person, again, you can take this journal and because it's time-stamped, because of where it's on, it's on a, a form site. And so everything is time-stamped. Everything is logged. There's a way to prove that this is who put this in here. This is what time it was. This was the date. And there's no way to uh, mitigate that evidence. So we, you know, in looking for a companion to the evidentiary abuse affidavit that can help family members or friends or coworkers to be able to also do something to help these these victims or these you know loved ones and be a part of the solution so yeah so that's a part of it too you know and all of this uh came about because of what happened in my family and that's just You know, out of such tragedy should come such a phenomenal resource is just amazing to me. You know, being the sister-in-law to missing Bolingbroke mother, Stacey Peterson, has been a joy and a heartbreak. And being able to go out now and bring this valuable resource out because of what Stacy and Kathleen Savio went through. It's a way for us to take what was such a tragedy and 
get something so good out of it. These women are going to make a difference to victims going forward because of what they went through. Norma, I know that the Stacey Peterson case got a lot of attention nationally, so most people probably already know the details of it. But I was wondering if you might want to just speak a little bit on a personal level of what you experienced with this since you were such an intimate part of it. Well, you know, first, and and I mean nothing by this, but for you guys, it was a case. For me, it was my family. It was something that we went through. You know, so that's sometimes a, a difficult thing, you know, because it's like this case, you know, and, and I get it. because That's what it is. It is a case and it should be studied and it should be looked at to see where things went wrong, you know, and things like that. When this, when October 28th, 2007, when that day started and she was reported missing on the TV, that was when I found out. You know, and that, I think, it had to be one of the hardest things to find out on a TV that your sister-in-law is missing. You know, so that just begins the nightmare that we went through for so long. And, I mean, what we went through was nothing compared to what the Savio family and the Kales family went through. By no stretch of the imagination but it has its own set of tragedy to it. What he did to his family because of what he did. I mean, he changed up us forever. He changed this family forever when he did that. Norma, when she went missing, how long had it been since you had last seen or spoken to her? About a week and a half. And what was she like at that time? Was she in good spirits or did she seem okay or did she seem upset? Um, Paul and I had a business and we were just starting out. We had had, um, we have a uh, patented product and we were um, selling it out of a Spencer's uh, gifts that run the Halloween store. So we were in there and Drew and Stacy had come in with the kids to come and get their pictures done because we were doing um, 3D photos at the time. And they came in and the kids were being kind of fidgety and, you know, they we had such a rough time getting smiles out of everyone. You know, it was just, it, you know, and... Drew just attributed it to the fact that, you know, the kids were tired. They'd been running around all day. Things of that nature. That's kind of how he put it. But when we were walking out, walking them out of the building after we had done that, I had a chance to talk to Stacy for a minute. And she looked so unhappy. And I asked her if she was okay. She's like, ah, Drew and I are fighting again. And I told her, I'm sorry, but I had to go back inside. So I just gave her a quick hug and told her, I hope everything's going to be okay. And they left. Did she ever say what they were fighting about? 
No. Um, she had called me the week prior from a new cell phone that she had purchased under her sister's name so that Drew couldn't find the bill. So Cassandra had gotten a phone for her so that Drew couldn't track it. And she had called me and gave me the phone number because she trusted me. And she said she why she had gotten it. So, I mean, I knew that things were rough. I had seen bruises. I knew how he would be when she was out because he would do it when with her when she was with me. And so what it was is she was growing up. She was becoming a, a blossoming young lady. And she was figuring out the marriage that she was in. And she knew she had to get out. But by this time, she had adopted Kathleen's children. So she wanted all four kids. And he was not about to let that happen. Nor was he about to let her walk away. I just didn't know he would do what he did. So there were a lot of um, red flags, a lot of signs leading up to... And, and of course, nobody in a million years is going to think that, you know, even even somebody who's very abusive, you, you think, oh, they're abusive, but you never think they're going to kill somebody. Right. I mean, you, you have it in the back of your head, you know, okay, you know that they are what they are, but you don't think that they would actually take that step. Because now, keep in mind, when Stacy went missing, we didn't know what he had done to Kathy. It wasn't until all that came out that even we found out a lot of things we didn't know. So we had no concept at all as to the situation that was unfolding for Kathy and, and Drew during all of this time. And then, you know, the only reason that we had had a relationship with Stacy was because Stacy insisted on it. She told Drew, I want my kids to know their aunts and uncles. So you're going to have to figure out how to make amends because we weren't speaking and figure it out. So that's why we were all talking. So that's the only reason that I was able to build the relationship I was with Stacy was at her insistence. Wow. And she was so young to have so much wisdom. She really was. I mean, she had um, been through so much. I mean, for someone so young, she really was a grown up in a lot of ways. She had to grow up quick. She had come up in a, a somewhat, a very difficult childhood. And everybody kind of depended on her to keep the family together and to take care of everybody. And it was a lot for her to handle. And yet she did it with love and with grace and with kindness. And for someone so young and now realizing what she was dealing with at home takes my admiration for her even deeper. Because now knowing what she was going through, and yet she was still this wonderful person to be around, 
It's just amazing to me. It just shows you, you, um, you never know what's going on behind the scenes. No, you don't. And that's why we need to, you know, do what we can to kind of treat each other with more kindness. And, and, you know, you, you do see some of that in, in the current environment. You know, a lot of people are coming together to help each other out in this, you know, COVID-19 times. So at least it gives you some hope that, you know, there are people out there that, well, there's always people out there for victims of domestic violence. You know, you've got your uh, National Domestic Violence Coalition. You've got, you know, a lot of different resources out there that are there to help victims. But it seems even more so now that, you know, we're all in this. You know, and one thing that I would like to point out, you know, bringing up the COVID is that you can almost equate what we're going through with what we're having to do with the COVID, staying home, not going anywhere, um, being told where, where and when we can go, being told what we should be wearing, being told, you know, I mean, basically limiting our freedoms. This is what a victim of domestic violence goes through every day. This is a small microcosm of what a victim's life is like. And maybe in going through this, people will have a better understanding of what it's like for victims. You know, think of the pushback that people are giving right now because they can't wait to get out. They can't wait to take their mask off. They can't wait to have their freedom. Well, victims are like that every day. That's what they want. They just want to live their lives. They just want to be loved in a way that they should be and that they are entitled to. But instead, so many times they are trapped. They are trapped in their houses. They are told what they can wear. They are told where they can go. They are told what they can do. I mean, this is just, it's the same thing in just a different application. So hopefully what we get out of this is, is a better understanding. Exactly. I do have a question. Um, you bring me to the fact of what is being told what to wear, where to go, when to go. What is a normal relationship compared to a relationship like that, a controlling relationship. Where is that divide over, okay, he's obsessing over me too much or he's just wondering what's going on and interested? Where Where is that divide? When there is some type of an inhibition or a, um, you're keeping someone from doing something. Now, you know, if it's a dangerous situation, yes, you know, just like your mother told you, you know, don't touch fire. Okay. You know, I get that. There's a situation that maybe I should be mindful of. But when someone starts to say, you shouldn't, you can't, there are certain trigger words you should be looking for. You wouldn't do that if you love me. That's a really powerful one that an abuser will use. If you loved me, you would do this. 
if you really cared, you wouldn't go there. You wouldn't leave me. When everything is in the context of proving your love on a consistent basis, then those are some red flags you should be looking for. You know, when there is a, oh, wow, you look great. You really shouldn't wear that without me. You know, that indicates to you a lack of trust. You should listen to these words. The National Domestic Violence Coalition has a lot of these types of red flags and um, puts them, you know, there's, like I said, quite a few um, different uh, entities that are out there that will help you to recognize these red flags. There was someone that um, Susan Murphy Milano worked with, Sandra Brown, with the Institute for Reductional Harm. And she has just a multitude of information and different uh, explanations and triggers and red flags that you should look for and different behavior patterns that you should look for and start to recognize when you're dealing with someone you think may be abusive. So anytime anyone's trying to exert the power over you in some form or fashion, because it can come, like I said, in so many different fashions, you know, whether it be psychological, emotional, physical, sexual, financial, you know, there are just, unfortunately, so many routes that an abuser can take to abuse someone. So all it takes is, is exertion of their power and control in any one of these situations. And if they'll do it in one, then watch because they're going to start to do it in other manners too. So watch the downhill slide, watch for, you know, make sure that you're not going down that route. And especially if you've been there once before, you need to work on who you are and recognizing that you deserve more and that you can have more. And it's out there for you. Use the resources that are available to you. It, it was so important for us to make document the abuse or to make the evidentiary abuse affidavit free for victims. We wanted to make sure there were no financial obstacles to someone filling out this affidavit. So it, it used to be, like I said, going back to the app, you know, that they charge for it. We want to make sure victims in no manner are, are prevented from putting their histories into words. Yes, because money is a big, uh, a big thing with domestic uh, abuse. I mean, literally sometimes, yeah, every dollar, that's what Drew used to do to Stacy. I mean, she had to account for every single dollar she spent. So if you have to do that or you have to pay for an app and it pops up on the, on, on your bank account, well, what's this? You know, we want to make sure that there is no obstacles. So you can get to it from any, you know, any place you think is safe. You know, your best friend's phone, your local, you know, once everything starts to open back up, you can go to your church, you can go, you know, there are places that you can go where you won't be tracked or that you can use an open computer so that you can't be traced. Yes, like you said before, the Every library I know of, public library, has. Right. So all you have to do is set up an account, you know, give your best friend the password or, you know, write it and, you know, put it, you know, there's got to be a, 
a couple places that you know are safe where you can just write down, you know, these words and, and stick them someplace. You know, so in, in your, you know, oatmeal, in, you know, some kind of a container that looks pretty innocuous, you can always put it in there. So it's just a matter of, you know, opening up an account and filling out the information. And it seems like it's a lot of work, but what we're talking about is someone's life here. And we may have to bring someone to justice on that information. So we want to be able to do the best that we can for this person and making what could be a horrifying situation and, and at least making sure that justice is brought to whoever that perpetrator is. And that's why we need to take the time to do it. I have a question for you. Um, and I know the word case and it involves and, and what it, it means. You just uh, mentioned it earlier. However, this is the, uh, the murder of, Travis Alexander by the hands of Jody Arias. It seems to be probably, I know the majority of the time it's a woman that is, um, is abused. However, there are men out there that are abused and they probably are like, Oh, I, I'm a man. I, I'm fine. I'm fine. However, they need to also document this abuse and where in that relationship do you think that he should have said, wait a minute, this is, this is serious. I mean, there were tires slit. She would show up in his house. Uh, there was all sorts of um, very strange occurrences that happened with him prior to his death. Unfortunately, uh, you know, there's, you know, and I don't know if it's just, in their heads or, you know, men feel that there may be some stigmatism coming forward to say that they are being abused because, you know, it was old school that thought that, you know, you just buck up and, and deal with it. You know, it was just a part of life. That's just what happens. And so many times men don't think that they're being abused. They just think, okay, well, this is the way that it is. And again, going back to how you don't know what his background was like that he thinks this is normal behavior. So he may not even realize that he is in an abusive relationship until maybe he hears something like this, you know, where, you know, you're being told, don't go talk to that person or go, don't, you know, quit looking at that woman. I see you're doing this, being constantly accused of infidelity, things of that nature, because, Unfortunately, the numbers are growing. So, you know, when we talk about domestic violence, we also have to include the terminology intimate partner, because not only can it be in the context of a marriage, but as it was with um, Jody and Travis, they weren't married. They were just, they had been in a relationship. They had been intimate partners. So there are all kinds of contexts that this can be used in. I mean, to be honest, he could have filled one of the EAAs out and there would have been track of all these crazy things that Jody did that he could say, you know, this woman is terrorizing me. She is, you know, doing this, this and this, but maybe, you know, he was thinking, oh, well, 
you know, really how much can she do? Yes, she's crazy, but I just need to move or I just need to, you know, change phones. He unfortunately did not realize the depths of her. I don't even know how to call Jody because, you know, that's, I mean, it's narcissistic and sociopathic. I mean, she's in the same category with Drew. They're, they're just, you can't tell them no. I can understand that. And I may be able to shed some light on that subject in a conversation that I had had with somebody dear to me. I had tried to address some abusive behavior that I witnessed through the years. And his response to me was that it was not abuse because there weren't any physical manifestations of it. There weren't bruises or scars or anything to show for it. But the problem was that he had grown up in a hostile environment where he witnessed his own father, who would come home drunk in a rage, load his gun, and threaten to kill everyone in the house. Because of the extreme level of abuse that he had experienced as a child, he had a very hard time understanding how anything that did not rise to that level could be considered abuse. It was almost like he had come to accept controlling and manipulative behavior as a normal way of life. In his, in his background, and it was probably, again, going generational, this, these types of behaviors are learned behaviors, and they go from one generation to another and, I mean, literally cause a lifetime of pain. So this, like you said, this gentleman had been raised in such an extreme environment that anything that didn't rise to that level wasn't considered. But that's where maybe handing someone like him information about abuse and that it isn't just physical. You know, maybe sending them information about a website. Maybe, you know, unfortunately, you know, maybe he doesn't want to look at the fact that he might be being abused because then that requires change and change is scary. And it's scary for so many people because you don't know what change is going to bring. And that goes back to when a victim is trying to leave, they have all these things that may see, seem overwhelming, obstacles that may seem overwhelming for them to have to get through in order to be free. That and because someone who has lived in this situation has been beaten down in every way. And they're often trapped in this mind control web that nobody will ever love them. They're not worthy of love. And this idea that if they would just stop messing up, then the abuser will finally love them and stop hurting them. Basically, the victim lacks the confidence and is afraid of being alone because the abuser has somehow managed to convince her or him that they can't make it out there without them and nobody else will ever love them the way that they do. That's a big one too. What you get is a consistent uh, behavior pattern where they keep choosing the same type of um, partners and having to go through the same set of circumstances over and over again and then wondering, well, is it just me? Well, maybe what we need to do first is work on you know, who you are so that when you love yourself, you can better love someone else. And so many times there is a lack of love for oneself in these types of relationships. 
Norma, this is so deep. I really didn't expect it to resonate with me the way that it has. So thank you for that. But being somebody who was up close and personal to the situation, but kind of on the sidelines, like what would you say to somebody who is in a position like yours that is witnessing something that could potentially be dangerous? Well, you go shoulda, woulda, coulda. I shoulda, shoulda done more. I, sh- you know, I, I could have got her out of there. I, I would have done anything that she asked me to if she wanted. You know, if you go through that, oh my god, time and time and time again, you just keep replaying. I should have done this. I would have done this. I could have done this. You know, but we can't do anything about shoulda, woulda, coulda. So what we can do is, I can, I will, and I am. If you have a family member or a loved one or a coworker or someone that you think is being abused. Just listen, be a good listener because that's what they need. As difficult as it may be, try not to tell them what to do. That's another big one because for victims, They're already being told what to do every day, all the time. You don't need to be another voice to tell them what to do. What you can be is a lifeline. What you can be is a listening ear. What you can be is just a hug and telling them you are going to get through this. You are loved and you are valid and you deserve love but more so from yourself than from anyone else. So that is, you know, it's just as difficult as it may be because I know family members get so tired. Oh, well, she left and she went back. You know, he's going back to her again. You know, the this cycle happens an average of five to seven times before a victim will leave. They need to build up to this. And as difficult as it may be for family members, just be a listening ear. Just say, if you need me, I am here. Set up a safe word or a safe sentence so that if this person calls you and you have a safe sentence and it needs to be something that is fairly common, if you set up with a family member or a loved one and say, okay, if you call me and say, hey, I'm out of sugar, can you bring me some? Or, hey, I'm out of sugar, can you go to the store and grab me some? Call the police. I'm in danger. Have a safe, uh, um, some type of, of safe word, safe, safe sentence, safe something with them so that if they should call you, If they should reach out to you in their time of desperate need, they have a way to do it safely. So work on having something like that with them in the the event that it should have to get to that. But at least that's covered. So these are the types of things that people can do to support, you know, anyone that they think is going through these types of situations. Go on different websites and check out what are the resources Go to your communities, find out what your resources are so that when this person does finally decide that they are going to leave, you can give them these resources and tell them, okay, here's who you can call for this. This church will help you out with financial. This will do, you know, be uh, just maybe a source of information, 
not telling them what to do, but just offering this up to them when they're ready to accept it. So just give them a way out. Just give them options so that they know that those options are there. Exactly. You know, and that you do support them. I'm not going to tell you what to do. I realize this is your life, but I am here when you need me. It's great. And having the, the, um, the options already there for them is uh, helpful. Yeah. Yeah. So if you do it within your own community, then they know exactly where they can go for help and, and things like that. So this way you're eliminating any time that they would have to spend collecting this information or trying to get it, you know, so offer to keep it for them could be another way. You know, it's just so important that they have someone that they can trust, that someone will listen to them, and that they won't be told from someone else what to do. Tracy, I know that in preparation of this podcast today, you had done a little bit of uh, research on some statistics on the subject. What did you find about that? Well, I just want to see if uh, Norma agrees with this, number one. Um, It's from the National Resource Center on Domestic Violence and Intimate Partner Violence, which can be the same thing, can be two different things. Um, It says about two out of five female murder victims are killed by an intimate partner. That's what, uh, 40%? That equals to about 40%. Is that what you have found in your area of travels? I would think that would have been higher. Yeah. Another one I saw was like 64%. That sounds more like. Okay. Yeah. That sounds more like it. I think that was way too low. And um, well, I guess 60% were wives or common law wives. Now, when you consider, do you consider Kathleen a domestic? Absolutely. Yeah, because she was, yeah, I mean, because at the time, they had a bifurcated divorce. So they were kind of divorced on paper, but they weren't divorced in uh, a financial sense. You know, not that that really changes anything, but in context to who she was to him, that's still a domestic violence. You know, I, I don't know if they list it as a domestic violence homicide or if they just list it as a homicide. You know, sometimes... It's so weird how they categorize things. You know, all it takes is one little variation or one person to, you know, list it as something different, and that's what it becomes. Just in case we have any listeners with us that are not familiar with who Drew Peterson is and are not aware of the nightmare of which we are referring Drew Peterson was a Bolingbroke, Illinois police officer who was eventually convicted of the murder of his third wife, Kathleen Savio, but only after the disappearance of his fourth wife, Stacy Ann Peterson. Kathleen's body was discovered in a bathtub, and her death was originally ruled an accident. But after Stacy's disappearance, Kathleen's body was exhumed, and her death was ruled homicide. And Peterson was convicted for that murder. Norma, we have talked quite a bit about Stacy's disappearance, but we really haven't covered Kathleen all that much. Was there a history of domestic violence in her relationship with Drew? And would you say that he had motive to kill her? Oh my gosh, she had all kinds of motive. And it was all fine. Well, I say it was all financial, but so much of it was 
unfortunately, going back to that power and control thing, that she, they were getting divorced. The judge wasn't putting up with him and his antics. And she was going to get a few thousand dollars a month. She was going to get spousal support. She was going to get to stay in this beautiful home that they had. And she was going after half of his pension. Now, that was always a sore spot for Drew. As far as he was concerned, that pension was his. He earned it. Nobody was going to take that away from him. And she was about to get that. So he was not about to let that happen. Plus, he was going to get visitation with his kids. So she was going to get to keep the kids and he was going to get visitation. And again, going back to the narcissistic behaviors, that those were his children. That was his house. It was his pension. It was his money. He just let her have some of it. You know, always minimalizing anyone else's, you know, contributions to whatever he had. So as far as he was concerned, there was no one that was going to get away with that. You know, least of all her. He hated her. So it sounds like the system really let her down. Oh, my gosh. There were 18 police reports on Kathleen, which all of this came out in court when they had the trial. And he was, I mean, we had no idea that it was as bad as it was. I mean, she had hospital reports. She had police reports. She had written to the state's attorney's office. I mean, Kathleen reached out in every way possible to try to get the help that she needed. And yet it all fell on deaf ears because he was able to manipulate that system. He was able to gaslight her is basically what he did. But he had all kinds of reasons for not wanting her around. You know, as far as he was concerned, when he was done with her, he was done with her. And you know what? Your kids don't need you either because I think you're a bitch or I, you know, I mean, it was just, and it sounds so rude, but what I'm doing is I'm giving you what goes on in this man's head. Unfortunately, I read him very well. And I, and I was around for the second wife too. Her and I were very good friends. So, I mean, I have seen his behavior with three different wives. Now that wife, I know it's not stated anywhere or there's not a police record or anything, but was there something that I remember that was suspicious that happened with her vehicle or am I incorrect? She got into a terrible accident while they were going through their divorce. And it was looked at again after this happened because I talked to her after this happened and I told her, you need to look at your accident. And she's like, you know what? I never thought about it. She says, I just thought that, you know, so we went over what that night was like for her and Andrew's behavior and that it was inconsistent with his normal behaviors. And, you know, as we're having this conversation, she is becoming more incredulous with the fact that he may have tried to do that to her too. What was different about his behavior? That evening that she had the accident, they were, I mean, they were going through a quote unquote friendly divorce because they still own the bar together. So, I mean, they were still talking to each other. Well, 
<clears throat> normally Vicki closed the bar at night. Well, that particular night, Drew came in and said, you know what? I took off work early. You can go ahead and go. I'll, I'll, I'll close the bar tonight. And she was kind of like, uh, what, you know, why all of a sudden today? And he's like, well, I just thought I'd be nice. I'll let you go. And so she's like, okay, well, I've got to take, um, there was a girlfriend of hers that was waiting for her because she was going to give her a ride home. And she says, okay, well, I'm going to give this person a ride home. And Drew acted kind of weird and said, what do you mean? She says, well, I told her I'd give her a ride home. You're giving somebody a ride home? Yeah. You know, and so she's, she's didn't think anything of the conversation, got in her car and, um, where she was going, there is, um, it's like back roads. I mean, not back, back roads, but you know, not well-traveled. Let's just put it that way. And it's kind of a rural area where she was taking this young lady and dropping her off. And they had an, a very bad accident and they went off the road into a ditch. She wound up busting her cheeks. I mean, she got pretty badly hurt, knocked out some teeth. It was bad. It was bad. And, but I mean, it wasn't, you know, weeks in the hospital bad, but it was, you know, that was a, a pretty bad accident. And fortunately her friend didn't, um, suffered too much medically either. So they were very lucky, but it wasn't until this happened with Stacy that Vicki and I had this conversation and then they started to look at it. So uh, I don't know whatever came of that. I don't know that they, you know, have this in their files somewhere, but I know that her and I, had to wonder. Was Drew still with the police force when all the reports were made on him? Yep. With Kathleen? Oh, yeah. He was sergeant, I think. Were there ever any reprimands on that? Was he ever, you know, disciplined at all? Um, I know that there had been some things in his file as to what they were exactly. I don't know. But it was well known in the town by the mayor and the police chief that Drew was seeing a 17-year-old girl. They knew that. And that is illegal there, right? So she's 17. So it's not, I, I don't know that, I, I don't believe it's illegal, no. Because otherwise they'd have arrested him. But because it was, I think she was, yeah, she was 17. Well, barely 17. But I think in Illinois, it might be 17. I mean, 18 means that you're an adult. But 17 is a consensual age. But 17, you can, yeah, consensual. So he barely made it through there. But they knew. Everybody knew what was going on. But he was seeing her before she turned 17, wasn't he? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, yeah, yeah, I think so. You know, I don't have any proof, but, you know, if you ask her sister, she'll tell you. Yeah. Norma, this is such an important case, such an important subject, and really deserves to just be, like you said, studied very closely. Um, and so I want to make sure that 
we cover every topic that we need to cover today. So is there anything that we haven't covered that you still want to touch on? Um, you guys have been great about letting me touch all the points that are important on document the abuse and things like that. So I appreciate that. And Norma, can you go ahead and share with us uh, where a person can find that online form? What is the web address for that? Uh, documenttheabuse.com, documenttheabuse.org, or you can Google evidentiary abuse affidavit. And it's on there. I also have a website, normampeterson.com. And that will, um, you can also contact me there if you have anything you want to, you know, talk about. Um, We will be doing trainings for law enforcement and those who are in the legal system soon that uh, we're going to be doing uh, online thanks to all these uh, COVID restrictions. So we're working on doing that also. So there's, um, you can email me at Norma M. Peterson at Comcast.net to contact me directly. We also have a Facebook page and I believe we'll be starting an Instagram here soon. I'm a little behind on things. <laughs> That's really amazing. You, you are doing really fantastic work and it's unfortunate that, you know, Kathleen and Stacy's lives have been lost. Um, and I always say, you know, the devil thinks he's winning when he does, you know, when he inflicts these heartaches, these tragedies on people and on people's lives. But when we take that power back and turn that horrible event into something good, then he hasn't won. He hasn't won at all. And it's, you know, that, that thing that he meant to destroy us actually got turned into something, you know, that, that made us better and not just made us better, but, you know, possibly saved, you know, we can't even count how many lives that you may have saved through your story um, and through your willingness to speak, you know, publicly like this. So what you're doing is really amazing. And, um, uh, I mean, I, I have no doubt in my mind that, that this is God's purpose for your life and that you're living it. So um. thank you. The fact that we can do something that honors these women like Kathleen and Stacy and Susan and the fact that they are all victims of domestic violence in their lives and it caused some of them their lives. You know, the fact that we can do something with what they went through and actually, like you said, think about saving lives with it or preventing this kind of violence, that to me is a a gift that we can leave for children. It can be their legacy, that their moms made a difference in someone else's life because of what they went through. So that's, you know, a lot of what drives me to do what I do. It's a way to honor these women and what they went through and the work that they have done, like with Susan. So this way, people know them more than for, you know, being someone's wife or being a homicide victim. They'll be known for having gone through what they did and helping to save lives. And I can't think of a better note to end this on. So Norma, I want to thank you for taking the time to join us today. This concludes today's episode of the Justice Warriors. Until next time, keep fighting for justice. Bye. Bye.
so that their souls may have peace. 